Hello everyone and welcome you all to a new episode of the Geopolitical People. Today we will have a really special episode because we will be talking about the elections in Brazil and how how uh, have they gone through, what problems have the candidates encountered, what are the challenges now going forward and the impact that it's going to have both in Brazil and in the region of Latin America. For that today I will have my colleague Alex Perry. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. I will have uh, Fede, Fede Caprari, he's our relatively common guest. <laughs> Thank you, Humphrey. <laughs> and today we have a special guest, we have Felipe Simoni. He's an intelligence analyst and he has his podcast, his own podcast on uh, international politics called Espetinho Internacional. It's in Portuguese, so if you guys want to <laughs> give it a look, uh, it's really, really interesting. Thank you, Felipe, for being here today. My pleasure. And uh, I would like to start a little bit with uh, what is the situation. Uh, Alex, could you give us some hints? Yes. So just to give you kind of an overview of how elections in Brazil worked and what happened. So Brazil's presidential elections are held every four years. It's based on a two-round voting system in which a candidate must receive more than 50% of the vote to win the first round. If no candidate passes the 50% threshold, a runoff election is held between the top two candidates. This year, there were 11 candidates on the ballot, but the real competition was just between two of them, the incumbent President Bolsonaro of the Liberal Party and then former President Lula da Silva of the Workers' Party. And this election ended up being extremely close, uh, but ultimately Lula won the runoff election with 50.9% uh, of the vote. So to me, I think uh, the interesting thing was that both candidates candidates ooh, had been <laughs> president before, so they were really running on um, their established track record. And I don't know, I would like to open it up now to you guys and what you think the central issues were for the candidates in this election and kind of anything you know about their background. All right. Uh, I think it's very funny how you start by saying that they've been president before because Bolsonaro's identity as a politician is of an outsider, which is a known figure, right? Everyone knows politicians like Trump and uh, they, they come with this discourse of not being a politician before. He has been a politician for over 30 years. He's done most of, if not all, his career as a politician. But even as a president, he always claims to be this government of an exception, right? So yes, they've been president, but the war in Ukraine, but the situation with COVID, but the media. So this is not the base in which he's running for. He's trying to kind of detach himself to whatever happened in his government because it was so, such an ex exceptional um, situation. With Lula, on the other hand, Lula is always doing that. He's always referring to the fact that, well, you know how my governments have been. Look at how many problems I solved. Of course, it's a different context, a different moment, but he's always using that card, right? And Bolsonaro is doing the same. He, he points at Lula and says, well, he's been a president. You remember all the problems. You remember all the trouble. So um, although both have been a president in the past, it's still something that um, it's played very differently from each of the sides in that. But you're absolutely right. That is very relevant. That is interesting uh, because of the of the memory that the people had from the times of Lula. I mean, uh, one of the reasons for Lula to win in these uh, elections, one of the reasons that analysts have been giving is that people did remember uh, from his mandate that uh, the Brazilian economy was growing, that there was a reduction in poverty and all this matter. If I'm not wrong, there is this problem. Uh, there is this program called Bolsa Familia. Yes. Uh, yes. That he that he put in place. 
all this Lula stopped being president in 2010 and right. then uh, he got and then he got arrested put in jail and then uh, the and then the condemned was um, was uh, withdrawn was withdrawn uh, what's the image that the people had from Lula because I mean it's again it's 12 years ago that he stopped being president then there was Dilma then there was all the all the problem with uh, the car wash uh, case right what is the memory that the people still have from Lula? This is, for me, this is the key point about Lula in his track in this elections is that the memory is what made him win, but it's also what pushed Bolsonaro so far. When people remember Lula, they definitely remember 4% growth. They remember BRICS. They remember um, how universities were much more accessible. But on the other side, they also remember the scandals of corruption that were huge scandals of corruption, right? You cannot downplay any of that. And the Operation Car Wash... Um, really played a trick in it. Uh, but in a general opinion in, in Brazil, what you see is that people don't really separate Lula from Juma from even Temer. They would mm -hmm. put all together and say, well, the Workers' Party has been in power for 15, 16 years. It's not really what happened, especially because Lula's uh, government was very different from Juma's government, but they are all put in the same, um, in the same boat. And this is to say that Juma was also kind of Lula's project, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have sort of internal uh, elections in Brazil too. And the Workers' Party was not going to put Juma forward if it wasn't for Lula being very adamant on having her as the next candidate for, for them. That's back in 2014, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. Um, and then she did, and then she got there. And you can see that she's probably not as smart of a politician, or maybe not smart, but as articulate as a politician, mm -hmm. um, because she couldn't keep up with whatever structures we had there. Uh, so in that sense, this is what I have to say about memory and Lula, right? It's his strong suit, it's his weakness as well. Um, and I guess now the way that he overcame it was by making a very diverse coalition. At least 10 big parties are supporting Lula now. Um, a bit of what happened in Czech Republic as well yeah. to fend off the right-wing uh, government. All of the other parties kind of got together. Um, in that sense... We are expecting Lula to do what he does best, with, which is articulate with all of these different um, players in the table. And that is very dangerous for a politician that has had a past with corruption, particularly towards this type of, you know, um, maneuvering to get everyone on his board. Yeah, I, like we were actually checking that, for example, the vice president right now is the the, pres the president, the leader of the center-right party, who okay. has actually presented himself uh, against Lula. Yes. Um, so more or less what we are, have we seen a, a polar, an extreme polarization in Brazilian politics due to this election where there's two clear blocks. There's one that is uh, anti-Bolsonaro trying to oust him and there's another one that is uh, on the on the ones that want to take him out or have we seen that uh, or, or do you think that what Lula has done is properly politics in politics in the end you have to agree with people and uh, you have to bring people together to your project obviously you always have to concede something what how do you that's a, a cliche answer I'm sorry for that but Yes and no, right? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> the way it goes is that if you look at how Brazilian politi politics uh, have evolved over time, we were a mostly right-wing country, and uh, especially after the redemocratization, you have a lot of liberal economists kind of trying to keep Brazil together and kind of arrange everything. And that's when Lula comes. He comes right after that. And Lula is the first left-wing president we have in Brazil after the redemocratization um, and one of the only ones in the history of Brazil. Um, that being so, 
he did have this stability to grow on. And this is what allowed Lula in the past to kind of get everyone on the same track. And, you know, everyone was getting, was benefiting from Brazil growing with that stable economy in Lula's government. So that's how he played it. Um, obviously, bottom up because he's left wing and all that. Um, however, the way that Lula is portrayed and the way that he talked about himself is as if he's this revolutionary worker, syndicalist. Mm-hmm. He's really not. Yes. He has this story, but when he goes into government, he's a very center-left pacifist that gets bankers and uh, the agricultural business, not the farmers, but the big, big farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how he plays. And this is his strong suit. The right wing always needed to portray him as his revolutionary savage, right? Uh, and the left wing too, because that's really the sort of national hero that they were trying to paint him. It's a win-win situation for him looking like a partisan. Yes, but also when polarization happens, then mm-hmm. it's a lose-lose situation for him, right? Okay. Because the left wing cannot subside all of that politically mm-hmm. and the right wing gets really, really radicalized when the alternative is communism. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it was, it was never, never the case. I would right? say this is the case better highlighted with Dilma Rousseff. Like all the campaign that they did against her is like, because of her past and everything, so on and so forth, it was really used by the, it was really used by the right wing in this case. Absolutely. The past that Juma has, in case you don't know, is that she fought the military dictatorship in Brazil. Mm -hmm. She was a guerrilla fighter. She was involved in uh, violent crimes, such as the kidnapping of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a U.S. ambassador. But if it's not U.S., it's one ambassador. Mm -hmm. So she did pick up arms and fought against the military dictatorship in Brazil. Right. Mm-hmm. It's clearly a dictatorship. The right wing questions that, but it's part of negationism. We know it was clearly uh, the situation there. And then it's a bit challenging to have Juma there as a representative of the people. Um, but it's not unheard of. We have a lot of former revolutionaries that become presidents and, and that's the case. Um, but now to the other side of the question that you've asked me earlier, uh, if the, the elections caused the polarization in Brazil, Of course, social sciences is never that simple, right? Mm-hmm. She can act dilemma yes, all the time. Is. But in this case, particularly, I think it's quite obvious that the election is a result of a polarization rather than causing it. As Fede mentioned, uh, the election Juma ISU in 2014, that was super polarized already. Mm. And the fake news, that was booming. They were, they had the worst, it's, they called Bolsonaro the Trump of the tropics, but what happened in Brazil is so much weirder. I can't even start to describe. In 2014, what was it? They were saying that there were baby bottles that it had of it was uh, in the shape of Venus. Okay. And that was, we know in the polls, we can see a direct impact in how people voted. So people believed fake news to this extent, right? But this is, this is also, because you're mentioning 2014, I yes. mean, this is early fake news. I mean, this is like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's like we, we have the idea, especially in Europe, that fake news started in 2015, 2016, actually, when Brexit yeah. started, like that's when uh, all this fake news started. But this is, that's actually pretty early. It's important, it's I think, the role of the traditional media also in Brazil, because in many instances, the channels are actually benefiting from these fake news or even generating them and promoting them. So you watch the channel because you're online it aligns very well with your views, your mm-hmm. ideological views, and the facts and everything can be completely twisted sometimes. You know? Absolutely. I would even go as far as to say that the mass media in Brazil was so powerful in the past that it shaped popular opinion. Hmm. Um, if you take all of the mass media uh, companies in Brazil, I think they go back to only six people controlling it. Um, and that's pretty intense, right? Global back then. 
uh, because it have an open signal of TV, you wouldn't have access to internet, but you'd have access to to your TV in the antenna. You'd watch the soap operas, and they would use it to you know make all sorts of discourses, like all media would. But media in Brazil is unregulated. It's not like in the US that you have all these regulations. This is also interesting. We can what, does, by- what does it mean? What does it mean that it's unregulated? There's no laws against monopolies. There's no uh, laws that would force uh, okay. medias to the, the media to. Uh, give the right of, of uh, reply and all of that. It's a very, oh, okay. very soft legislation towards what they can do and they cannot do, both as huge companies and as information outlets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when Lula comes up and says, okay, my public policy regarding that is to regulate media, people freak out and they go immediately to, that's communist censorship. What Bolsonaro did on the other hand, and that was mostly Bolsonaro, although it started early as well. So you can see how Bolsonaro's Part of this right-wing rampage that they've been going on. Yes, exactly. Since Not like it started now. Is that it's, it's it's taking it's taking what was before and yes. it's give it some. It's yeah. Money. It's very hard to detach it from the whole far right movement that started like I don't know uh, a few months before Trump gets elected there. So you can see how it's all part of the same game. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's I can't say that it's the same guys behind the curtains. That would be. If, <laughs> very conspiracy. There's no Steve Bannon there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Steve Bannon is literally the guy that advised Bolsonaro's campaign. Yeah, no, no, no. Right? <laughs> so in that case, yes. no, no, he advised, he advised um, many campaigns around the world in the last, in the yes. last ten years. And then it's not to say like, oh, they're all in this the, the secret meeting controlling mm-hmm. the world. It's absolutely not the case, or at least we don't know that's the case. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we do know that they have very similar arguments. They have very similar points of views. And they even talk to themselves openly, internationally. So you can know that that's aligned. Uh, so what Bolsonaro does is the same thing as Trump did, which is the mass media lies. They're manipulating you. Mm-hmm. And honestly, they I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to they lie. It has been the case in the past, but only in very specific points. But it's something that the left wing would say too in 2014 and in the early stages of this, uh, to the point that global wouldn't be able to cover protests because people just wouldn't talk to them. They'd have to they'd yeah. cover it from a distance, from a helicopter, yeah. you know, but people would just go and they would shout like, oh, you're lying, you're lying. And left wing and right wing, both of them would do the same. Yeah. Now it's clearly something that's concentrated on the right wing. The right wing is much more violent towards the mass media. Um, and that comes with the fact Bolsonaro's in power and that's part of his discourse as well. Uh, the media is extremely happy that he's leaving because he's personally, individually, he's very rude and aggressive. To women in the media, absolutely. To any report that he's very, he can be very gross yes, in yeah. general. Yeah, but, but to women, mate, he's yeah. brutal. And yeah. Then I want to get a little bit into into that uh, because we're talking about the this this uh, fake news in a, in a way. Uh, what has been because there's been a massive scandal in yes. Brazil because during the elections because of this, if I'm correct, the 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 judici- the court, the Supreme Court, I think it is had to actually intervene in some uh, information that was being spread because they wanted to cut down this fake news, yes. but still it's been massive. It's been like at a level that it's crazy. How does, because the question that we were having is how do these fake news spread throughout the population? Because we were reading, obviously, like you have the some WhatsApp, some whatever, but these groups, we also know that uh, Carlos Bolsonaro has been investigating for spreading this, this yes. fake news, uh, but... How has it developed into a way? Because Brazil is a 200 plus million people country. How do you get to, to, to with that, with those social media? I mean, in a WhatsApp group, you have 253, 56 people. 
How does it get to spread that long? Oh, there was a group of the family. That's exactly what it is. Do you know yeah. your auntie? The one that thinks mm-hmm. she, because she has a bakery, she understands about finances and economy. That's the one. And yeah. you know her uncle, he's a truck driver. He's absolutely outraged with the prices of the oil. Can he explain how they're made? He cannot, but he can be explained mm-hmm. how it works. And yeah. honestly, that's part of the reason why we started this Pitch International, my podcast. It's because we are sick and tired as professionals to go and explain to your grandma, to your father that, listen, I can go on about why Jum is not a terrorist for 40 minutes explaining the definition of terrorism, blah, blah, blah. And after you do all of that... <laughs> that's so difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's so difficult to explain. Right? No, no, no. That's so difficult to explain to someone that thinks the opposite to, <laughs> to you. Because fair enough. They're saying the same. One ter- uh, your terrorist is my freedom fighter. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But that's the uh, it's part of the roles of a scientist as well, mm-hmm. right? Of course. The knowledge is stuck in yeah. academia and it's quite... I mean, it can be quite useless if it's just in a book on a shelf. So yeah. I feel as a part of, of the job of a scientist to kind of bring it out and then you do it and then you do it in a very nice way in a very you know uh, didactic way we learn things about that I've been a teacher for 10 years now so for me I really make an effort to make those things accessible mm-hmm. and then at the end of the long explanation we are being very reasonable and let's be fair she's not a terrorist but you don't have to like her and she did commit crimes there's a thousand reasons to criticize her but she's not a terrorist all right and then they'll say okay but I disagree <laughs> or they'll send you back yes, two, yes, three yes. WhatsApp audios with this random guy yeah. in the road saying that, yeah, we're here because humans are terrorists. And, and they'll just go on about that. Uh, and they'll send you links from these news outlets or blogs. So you get a yeah. huge volume of information, self-referencing. So you know that the source that they have is probably the single source or maybe two, three sources there. Mm-hmm. Um, not even based on much. Uh, so it's volume. And then... I have to say that this is uncharted territory at the moment, right? Yes. We haven't started the formal investigations in Brazil, but we can point and guess what's going on over there because it's it's one of those things. It's quite obvious. We haven't investigated. We haven't proved. So it's quite obvious, but it could always be a different story mm-hmm. behind But this. do you think the Brazilian institutions have made a relatively good job in preventing this information to shape too much the elections in this case, like the judiciary in particular, with the investigations, also telling the police to do some arrests, etc., uh, etc. Et oh, yes and no, mate. Like, I get where you're coming from, and I think that's a, a good point. And in mm. this election now, yes, it, they did act a lot on it, mm. um, but they're being very accused of being unfair. Uh, the left wing would say they're being unfair because they've asked Bolsonaro to remove a bunch of the fake news that they've been, they've been spreading, um, but they've asked the left wing to remove a bunch of segments and videos from Bolsonaro's uh, accounts themselves. Mm. So you have, for example, Bolsonaro's uh, making comments that could that are very clearly they have like a pedophile kind of uh, tone to it. He's talking about uh, I don't know. It was how he was flirting with minor girls in, in this situation. It he published that video. It was in his YouTube channel. He was talking about it, and that was also asked to be removed from the campaign. Mm. Um, and then the left wing is like, oh, that's unfair or that's you know that's crazy why would you do it but then it comes from this idea that it's okay you're not going to be able to talk everything that you you're not saying everything you want or everything that's true that's not how campaigns work Mm -hmm. there's a lot about images that you want to preserve there's a lot in the law that would prevent you from saying things like that Mm. um and that's part of the game it has always been part of the game uh but then on bolsonaro's side they would say that the left wing does it too but they're only taking our content now 
Like, why can't I say that Lula is a communist? He is, mm-hmm. right? He's not. But if you want to say it, why can't you say it? Yeah. So there's, uh, they've been doing a good job and you can see how these elections were much less impacted by his fake news as uh, the other ones from 2014 were. But they are also accumulating a lot of tension in the whole system. And now maybe we could go a bit. Yeah, no, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I don't know if it's that what you want to do, but I want to go on like, what are the segments of the population that have been more touched by mm. by this in a way if you if we follow i mean here we are geopoliticians so we like to check a little bit in the geography and how does it affect uh, and to the elections in brazil i think it's pretty i think it's pretty interesting how it's how it's affected uh, the regions the poorer regions uh, which are historically more uh, leaning to the to lula's party to the working party they haven't been that clear in their vote for lula for lula actually not uh, re- I mean, according to the polls, Lula had 15, uh, 15 points over Bolsonaro in uh, yeah. in July, yeah. and it ended up being one, well, two. But for example, which is interesting, uh, at least for me, that places where farmers are, places where low-income people are, farmers, uh, miners. timbers, miners, yeah. they've voted for, for Bolsonaro in, uh, in, in many places, especially in the Amazon. How... Why, particularly with this with this group, uh, because I assume and by the stats they are not the richest people in in Brazil. No, they are not some people that could be touched by this. Uh, but I feel I think it's got something to do with the with the policies uh, regarding the expo- the exploitation of the Amazon, doesn't it? And historical roots. Everything is going to be mm-hmm. way. It starts way back always in Brazil, um, and that's absolutely right. The argument that the elites vote for Bolsonaro. That's flawed and it's also flawed that the bases are going to vote for Lula. Mm-hmm. We haven't verified that. What happened to the polls is still a bit of a mystery. We're trying to figure it out. There's a lot of research and a lot of questions being raised because of that. Um, some people are saying it's because Bolsonaro, uh, well, the right wing overall, they were very resistant to, to answer to the polls. So you could ask and then they would refuse. But then that would be a bit, I don't know, I think that would be a bit unprofessional from the researchers not to realize that you have a huge uh, refusal to your questionnaire and that would have given you some hints right on the other hand what they're saying is like listen mate i go to the streets i ask the questions and that's the forms i get i'm not trying to figure out what the results going to be in a week or in a day i'm getting what the results are when people reply to me in the streets that's what i have right so it's uh, it's disputed territory and you're going to get all sorts of opinions here um now but regarding the these votes specifically about the these smaller communities um particularly the extractivist communities. The way that Brazil was populated in the center and in Amazon as well is that we had to have a huge public policy that would take people there, right? So what you had is you'd get people that were moving around because of the war in Paraguay, because of many different uh, huge movements, uh, demographic movements that we had in Brazil, and you'd give them an opportunity. You'd say like a kind of... uh, gold rush style you know like mm-hmm. why don't you go to the you know uh wild brazil and you're gonna get your plot of land there you're gonna get your cattle there you're gonna do your own community and that's gonna be great and then they move there and then there's huge farmers that already own that land there's no documents to support any of that yeah that it's all up it's so far back i think the last time we see, we've seen something like that was in the 60s uh, by the way brasilia the capital was built in the 60s yes, 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 yes. so yeah, it's uh, everything is very recent but everything yeah. goes very far back as well right so these people go there and they're having their life there and then one day someone knocks at your door and says you know what that's actually indigenous land 
you have to move out, mm-hmm. right? And they're like, wait, no, that's not what we do. Or they go to you and they say, oh, you've been selling uh, timber. You know, that's actually illegal, right? There's a lot of things you can't do. This is how you have to do it or whatever. Um, and they're very distant from the means of communication overall. Some of those communities, they can be quite isolated. Um, so it's very easy to radicalize them as well. And let's talk about organized crime in it too, right? The violence that you have in some of those areas, that's a very high rate of violence. And uh, all of that plays into this very complex puzzle of what's happening there, right? Uh, that being said, it's also the same case for the indigenous people. They were there, they had their lands. They, uh, most indigenous populations in Brazil, I think nowadays we have over 200 indigenous people, over 300 indigenous peoples in Brazil over 200 different languages, mm-hmm. and I couldn't even tell you a third of those. I don't know that because... Yeah, most of them, they are in the Amazon and... Uh, not necessarily. They, most of them are in the Amazon, yes, but there's a lot of indigenous communities outside, even in the cities. Like, like Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I would understand, but I assume like in the cities you could have, maybe you could spot uh, some, let's say, that 100, but like in the Amazon, because of its, because of its Still, whiteness... Still, I wouldn't know the names of those peoples mm-hmm. because we just don't learn about it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's something that Brazilian mm-hmm. history has neglected. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said... They used to be semi-nomadic, so they would move from place to place and go back to this and that place. But at some stage, someone just told them, no, the, the way we do communities here is that you have to have your land and you have to stay there. And so they did, based on a lot of violence. Uh, and now there's this guy here that's fishing in the river, and he says that the government sent him there, or I don't know, this farmer sent him there. So what do you do about it? Because they're also, these extractivist communities, they have a huge impact for the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see, it's very clear how indigenous populations, they are the territories that are preserving the forest the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, uh, can you see how complex it is? It's, mm-hmm. it's yes, a mess. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. We say that Brazil is not for beginners and it's clearly... No, 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 no. <laughs> Just one factor. I think Bolsonaro had developed a capacity to maybe speak directly to these communities. Yes, in the yes. sense of using a lot of social media, the Facebook lives, uh, the WhatsApp groups that spread his actually his ideas, etc. It reaches better these communities and those people that we're saying rather than, uh, in my opinion, Lula and the PT. Uh, you're absolutely right. Because they, they explain to you yeah. that you cannot do this because the consequences for the ninjas. And the guys say like, well, I have to eat. That's why I go the gold illegally, etc. And Bolsonaro speaks more directly to this guy saying, I understand you have yes. to do it. You're a hard worker. You go ahead and do it. Who cares about the indigenous? And right? he does it from a rational point of view, but not so much. that He does it from a personal point of view too, mm. uh, as a discourse, right? He even said, he came to say that he has this, how do you call that? Uh, it's kind of like a plate that he used to, to take gold from. Ah, yeah. The, 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 yeah, well, yeah. Like, no. Ah, yeah, the like one to you, sift gold. Yeah, yes. something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, it's we use a different one in Brazil, but yeah, it's something like that. He'd say like that. He still did it. That he grew up in a in a small village and they used to do it when they were young. And every now and then, on when he's free on the weekend, he'd do it just because he remi- he remembers his childhood and he goes. He brings this. He's very very good at this, right? So he hooks up on this history. That's interesting. He probably yeah. did it himself. I'm not saying he's lying, sure. but does he do it on a on a weekend in Brasilia? Well, I guess yeah, that might not, be a bit tough, right? It's not much uh, <laughs> Jokes aside, he <laughs> does that, <laughs> and he also does it in a in the classic right wing strategy, which is oversimplifying things. And goes and says, yeah. "Well, in my government, you be able to take all the wood you want." Yeah, and that's it. And on the other hand, he says it in an oversimplified way, but he really does it because he just goes in our. Uh, 
institutions that investigate and that regulate that and he just defunds them and fires people and all and places people that are pro extractivism and those and his comments all the time they challenge even what the policies of the institutions are you know yeah absolutely like ibama which is the agency for environment in brazil was saying like um when we get to an illegal mining place we will destroy the equipment that we find there exactly and then bolsonaro says on tv no, no, they cannot go and destroy the equipment. What do you mean? They, they take the people and everything, but the equipment, you cannot destroy it. Yeah, so yeah. Constantly contradicting what Obama says diminishes the authority of that institution at the end of the day. Absolutely. So what happens with this specific... This was a huge topic in the way he um, maneuvered Obama as well. Is because if you are one of, from one of those extractivist communities, you'd have your own equipment, right? So what it, what it says in the law is that you have to remove the equipment from the area, and if you can't, you destroy it. And then the Obama would destroy it. And Bolsonaro would say, well, if you got it there, you can get it out of there, right? But then what does it mean to take it out of there? Does it mean that you just bring it back to your garage and you come back on the next day? Mm-hmm. Like, or, or what? Do you confiscate it from them? So there's a lot of um, soft spots that he hits very hard. But um, Fede, you mentioned something that's absolutely uh, important too, which is how Bolsonaro reaches into all of these communities. And for yeah. me, that is the key for the um, disinformation campaign, for his regular legitimate campaign too, which is Bolsonaro has two huge groups that support him, which is the police and then, uh, well, the armed, the armed forces, security forces, let me yeah. that way. And then the armed forces, they have the capillarity that the armed forces have in Brazil, in this, uh, in the Amazon, in the Pantanal, in all these, you know, wild areas of Brazil. It's huge. We have relied on the armed forces to do a lot of things in Brazil that are not their job, and they still do it, and they do it super well. Um, the hospitals in deep Amazon, uh, they're all run, they're all campaign hospitals there. Well, not all, maybe, but They build also, strongly. let's say, a highway, for instance. All of that. And yes. in a big family, there's always someone that is, let's say, in the military. At the end of the day, yes, you know? that would be very in that, in that sense, I, was, uh, I remember reading while the, while, like during the campaign that there had been some distance from the military towards right. Bolsonaro while the campaign was going on. We can get to that later, but before we get there, just to, to conclude this idea about uh, the capillarity, he mm-hmm. does it in the countryside via the armed forces, particularly the army, and the urban areas, that's the military police that has a huge capillarity there, mm-hmm. but also the Protestant church, right? So he... The, the way that Bolsonaro has articulated his capillarity in Brazilian society is very, very smart. It's super efficient. Um, and Lula, the left wing in Brazil has been criticized for it for a few decades now, that they're not as popular as they used to be in the past. They're not as much of a base movement as it used to be in the past. And Lula said it in this campaign. So you can see how he's also trying to hmm. uh, retake that narrative. And this is why... Every different week, he was talking about how he religious yes, is. Yes, He's yes. trying to reconquer that land. Um, he won, and now we already have one of the biggest. I think it was a Macedo, or was it Silas Malafaia? One of the biggest uh, religious leaders in Brazil, just going and saying, "Well, we forgive Lula." You know, like he didn't need forgiveness, and that's what the, the yeah. party says. <laughs> but he did bring it, and because it was really, they were demonizing Lula. They were saying that Lula was the spawn of Satan and worse. Yes, yeah, yes, they, that's uh, it's literally that's the text yes, that, yes, they, yes. that they said. And now they're like, you know what? Maybe it's not that bad. Not you know? that like bad. we're okay with that. But is it a surprise? It's not a surprise. They were Lula's friend when Lula was in power, and they are again now. Everyone wins when Lula's in power, and that's what he's trying. The to case do. for the church in Brazil is not like also 
so much in one party or the other because they have always been kind of connected to power. Yes. Like um, Temer, for instance, he always was saying, like, no, I'm protest and whatever, etc., etc." You know? So the church has always like a, a very a very big political position in Brazil. You know, it's true that I think by ideology they will align more with Bolsonaro. But as you yeah. say, Lula knows that he needs them and the church is more than happy to continue collaborating with him. That's why you see this changing yes. message. To be fair though, they're always going to be conservatives with exceptions. Yeah. Exactly. Um, that being said, they are conservatives that would be okay talking to Lula if Lula is in power. So it's yeah. they are aligned strongly to right-wing conservatism to sometimes to an extreme level. Yeah. Um, but they will talk to people, right? Yeah. Um, if you have the right tools for bargaining and all, and that's what Lula is doing. Um, on the other hand, with Bolsonaro, it's really it's it's a more open uh, type of debate, right? They they would go very far into what conservatism means because Bolsonaro would as well. That being said, you were asking about how the military de distanced themselves mm -hmm. from Bolsonaro. This is something that's been on and off in Bolsonaro's campaign from the beginning because we don't have a good civil-military relationship in Brazil. We had a military dictatorship that started in 64 and it ended in 85. Our first direct elections were in 92, so maybe I'm a bit too old, but I guess I can say that Brazilian democracy is as old as most of the people listening to this podcast. Right. Yes. And we had uh, a coup impeachment of Dilma in 2016. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is it even that old, right? Um, Does yeah. ours, ours is uh, ours is older than that. Very <laughs> old. We still say that it's that it happened yesterday, basically. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the structure that made that happen in Brazil has not gone away. Mm -hmm. We didn't do any sort of. Uh, appeasement with that. There's a commission of truth that's trying to look into it, but that's very polemic. And then there's a lot of debates that happen to it. And it's very stiff and so it's it's not walking forward. Uh, if you compare it to Argentina, it's going to be a, sh a joke, like Brazilian way of dealing with our past compared to what Argentina did to their military dictatorship. Yeah. It's really a joke. And then you can even like it or dislike what Argentina did. But the fact is that they even came up with new methods that have shown to be very effective in how their military related to that population. Uh, okay, they had Malvinas on the way too. Let's not talk exactly. about that. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a big... <laughs> <laughs> But um, that being said, this is a thing that will impact Bolsonaro's uh, situation with the army too. The army and the armed forces, they know that this Bolsonaro situation, let's call it that way, will be something that's going to fall on their hands. It's something that's going to make... It's going to be their bill at the end of the day. That's how mm. they say it too. The vice president is a general and he said it himself. We all know that if this goes wrong, it's going to be on the account of the armed forces. See, so, uh, I mean, free translation here. Um, that being said, so we, we know that they are worried about it, but they really, really trust that they can be in power again. Um, I'm not saying that they're planning a coup. We know that they've been having very suspicious uh, speeches and they've said some weird stuff about it. All right. So, uh, It's dangerous. They're not being very clearly against the coup, uh, a new coup. Uh, on the other hand, they were very much all right not give, not going through a coup if they could be in power as they were in Bolsonaro's government. Like the amount of armed forces people, active armed forces people in his government. Yeah. The way the Brazilian law works is that you can be involved in, politi in politics if you're not in the army anymore. So if you want to be involved in politics, you go to the reserve and then you become a politician. 
This is not the case for a lot of the military people that Bolsonaro had in, in the government. Personally, I don't think it's so needed that you leave the armed forces to do something for the government. But if you start being involved in politics, parties and all that, then it gets a bit more complicated. We're talking about ministers and then all the way below. Not even ministers, but also mid-level government positions are filled with military people. Because eventually, Bolsonaro, when pushes some policies, I think this was um, better identified in, during the pandemic with his healthcare Absolutely. policies. He said, I can only trust these people to do what I want to do yeah. because the rest will go against me. Every time he put a civilian, being Mandetta or the other health ministers that came, they were disagreeing with him um, for many reasons, in my opinion, very obvious. <laughs> and eventually he said, no, you know what? So the military will do it, you know? And he put military people in the Ministry of Health, the minister eventually, and also a lot of positions there. I must add though, I think the military in Brazil still wants to keep the reputation as we are like the notion of state, you know? Yes. That transcends a bit more like the government or the politics, like the military is capable, as you say, mm -hmm. uh, we build hospital, etc. We have a big presence in Brazilian society, it's a big employer in Brazil. And so it kind of keep tries to keep at least this um, reputation for itself. And that's why they, they, in my opinion, they would not push uh, for a military coup, let's say. And I understand also because why with Lula, for the fact that he has been in power for many years before, the military could work also with him. Oh, Lula was one of the best governments for the military exactly. in Brazil, in terms of investments, in terms of how much prestige you get. I don't think the military is threatened by Lula, in the sense, if he was no, another candidate, let's say, or, or another political group, I would understand why the military would want to make a group. But they're afraid of the left-wing communist, yeah. right? Because the coup in Brazil happened, is claimed to have happened to defend Brazil against communism. Yeah. So when you have Lula and you have Juma, and Lula and Juma represent communism for the military, that's an ideological. But I would say the it's I, more about Dilma by itself. Remember what we discussed before, like yeah. her background, how she had a, an impressive campaign against her because she was a militant, a terrorist, etc. Yes. I don't think that's the case with Lula. Also because he's very, I would say, more aware than Dilma. Mm -hmm. He's more capable of maneuvering Brazilian politics. And he doesn't get dragged by it. In the case of Dilma, sadly, she was not able to manage that. And uh, eventually she fell. Then with that, can we go a little bit like, what are the challenges that now Lula is going to have as a uh, president? Because there are several, um, we're talking here about groups, like those are, we can mm -hmm. consider them all pressure groups. And uh, one pressure group that goes together with, uh, with this military uh, are some unions, like the truck union. Uh, calling for, uh, well, relatively constantly calling for a coup in demonstrations, blockading uh, right. um, highways. Um, what are the, let's, I would like to start a little bit with the social, uh, with the social factors that Lula will challenge, will have to face uh, during his mandate. What are these? We were talking about before the, um, the farmers, okay. uh, we were talking about uh, mining uh, regions. Um, now the the truck unions. We're talking about the sector, like a religious sector of the society. Absolutely, yeah. Society speaking, what is uh, Lula going to be facing now? That oh, he's going to be facing a huge challenge. First of all, um, to say that there is no money for it in Brazil is always going to be a lie. Brazil produces a lot of things, and there is always a lot of money. It's a matter of where is it going and what's the priority and how you're distributing it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's the, the challenge for Lula now. We have this, um, 
I don't know how to say it in, in English, but uh, there's a ceiling of investments that... Ah, o teto de gasto. Yes. That's uh, the limit the, the government has for, yeah, for yeah, public yeah. spending. Yeah. But so particularly gasto. in education and uh, health. And there's other areas too, but in these two particularly, that's been quite strong. So to control the um, domestic that we have this thing that there's only so much you can invest in those areas. Um, a lot of governments have bursted this limit a couple of times. When I mean a lot, I mean Juma, Temer, and uh, Bolsonaro did it too a bunch of times. But now, if you see, Bolsonaro's government spent a lot of money. So when Juma left government, I think it was 380 um, trillion, billion trillion, I'm not sure, but 380 lots of money that she left in the, in the, uh, in the balance. And then Bolsonaro's got the same amount, but negative. So he not only spent, well, Well, we have to include also account for the pandemic and yeah, also absolutely. the expenditures. Yes. The, the um, payments that he was giving for the pandemic. I'm not talking about the health expenditures and everything, but absolutely. like the economic aid directly. Yes, but this and economic aid is a part of it, right? Yeah. Because the way he did it is that he took that uh, assistentialist pro program called Bolsa Family, which is a reference internationally. It's a mm-hmm. great program. It has a lot of uh, things that we can criticize as well, but overall it's a very good program. Um Then he took it and renamed it, and then he made it. He gave more money to it and included more people in his policy yeah. to make it through the pandemic. It's something that he resisted a lot in the Congress. That's true. It's something that came from the left wing, but it happened in his government. And he so claimed he claims it. it. Yeah, he claims yeah. It, yeah. Um, and then, of course, you do it during the pandemic. That's one thing. We all know that one of the biggest punches to the gut that you can take as a politician is when you give the population some aid and then you have to retract it. Yeah, right? of course. So yeah. now that, quote-unquote, the pandemic is done, it's not really, but um, as we were locked inside before, um, it is done. So as this goes, what do you do with that type of existentialism? And remember, Brazil is that populous, but it's also one of the most unequal countries in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The social gap in Brazil is one of the biggest in the world. Yeah. So if you have... Yeah. God bless Latin America. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all, most former colonies, to be fair. Yes, um, yes, yes. That being said, so what, what goes on with that? It's a huge economy. It's yeah. an economy that has... Um, grow, it's been growing. The, the GDP is growing in Boston. It's supposed to be the eighth largest economy in no time. No, I, don't think, I don't think it's weird. Really by, by 2030, yeah. 2040, something like that. Yeah, the place that we've been yeah. occupying, <laughs> it's been that one. Of course, yeah. Bolsonaro dropped it a few. But uh, the 20, because yeah. in Latin America, Absolutely. in South America. So uh, what happens that our GDP is growing and we also have hunger striking the population of Brazil? It's clearly a distribution of that income yeah, and exactly. how that happens, yeah? So when you do uh, policies like that, and that was, in my opinion, what Lula did best in his government, which was, okay, we're growing, let's grow bottom up, because then all of these people that have no money, they join the economy, they make the money circulate, and then all of these companies that need to sell things, all these banks that need people to loan money, they're going to loan money to those guys that now can buy a car, a fridge, that's all the things he says, and yeah. uh, and picanha and all of that, you know, like, uh, it's a Brazilian barbecue. Um, which really speaks <laughs> to our hearts, okay? If a dude comes up and says you're going to be able to eat barbecue, you vote that's how you directly. win the elections. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a pity though the thing that how the this massive corruption scandal at the end of the day also tarnished a little bit the, the whole uh, economic growth ring of Brazil, etc. I must say also that Bolsonaro, um, although he always plays to be business friendly, you know, like no regulations, less privatized state-owned companies, he also faces a lot of 
criticism from very liberal, economically liberal people because he hasn't really privatized much. You know, he hasn't really done many, many policies in this regard on a scale that he promised. So he really nourished mm -hmm. from like, as we call it in Brazil, the Faria Limers, the people yeah, from yeah. Sao Paulo, which is like the, the business area, etc. Investment, yeah. And investment. But at the end of the day, as uh, Felipe says, he spent more than any other government, etc., etc. And his policies are also like very, uh, also following the developmentalist uh, idea. No? Uh, not well, really, no. In, in many senses, that's the criticism he gets many times from the very economical liberal people. Yeah, know? but that's not very accurate. Like so. They say like, he promised he will privatize Bank of Brazil and he never did. But that's he not necessarily the developmentist, right? So, and you had no, candidacies that would be very developmentists, which yeah. is the case of Ciro. Um, but Ciro Gomes is one, was one of the candidates. Very polemic, very funny as well. Um, but that's a topic for another day. The way that Bolsonaro has been questioned about the economy since his first campaign, he would come up and he would say, I don't know anything about the economy. You've got to ask Paulo Guedes. Which right? is the superb star, you know, Chicago yeah, boy well, star. In he theory. really yeah, wants no, no, to no, no. sell himself like that. Think no, that's the thing. that How he was portrayed is like, yeah, absolutely. this guy knows economy. He was, a, I think he was an investment banker before. He had yeah, his investment he company. A teacher in, in, and a teacher in, economy in, in Chile doing, during Chile. Exactly. So he comes like, he's going to fix all of Brazilian messes. Absolutely. And the yeah. Bolsonaro really played on that too. He would say like, I don't know anything about economy. Ask him. There was even like a, a, one ad that everything you needed, you could go for the store. But, and people were calling Paulo Guedes this story because every time Bolsonaro was asked about a, an economic challenge, a growth yeah. challenge, a development challenge, he'd say, well, go ask that guy. But right? I think, for instance, with the prices of oil and gas, like at one point Bolsonaro, he wanted to intervene directly on the prices with yes. Petrobras and the director of Petrobras said no, because that's one thing. When Bolsonaro got yeah. into power, eventually the management of Petrobras changed and they say, no, the prices of gas and oil will follow the ones of the market. If it's expensive, it's expensive, if yes. it's cheap, which is something that didn't happen for instance, during Dilma. No, this happened in Temer. And then both, yeah. but then Temer is already kind of the right wing turn that Brazil does, right? So it's it's separate from what Bolsonaro yeah. happened, but not so much in a way. Um, so what they did is that they indexed the price of the oil, which means that the prices of oil in Brazil are going to follow the dollar prices of oil internationally. Exactly. Uh, which is weird because we produce a lot of oil and we have a huge market inside. So it might not be the most popular idea, but in terms of investment, that gives the company a lot of stability and a lot of yep. predictability. Uh, so for international investors, that's a good game. For the country, that's much more debatable. Uh, that, but before that, What's weird about Bolsonaro is that Bolsonaro comes from this military, he's always complimenting the dictatorship we had or yeah. other dictatorships to the point that Bolsonaro is given condecorations to Nazi generals recently, right? Yeah. A few years ago, they've like, given like condecorations. Yes. Nazi generals. Yes. How do you so, give a condescendation to a dead person? They did it. They, well, I'll tell you what. First, you become the president of Brazil. Yes. And no, then you do whatever you want. You can do whatever But the first step, I get the, the, the first step, but it's like a, a, a condescendation post-mortem. Yeah. What? Yeah, I mean, they do these things. And then it's something that's not very open or it doesn't get some, as much coverage. And then if yeah. it does, it's labeled as exaggerations or, you know, uh, drama. But uh, just to go back to the topic. Bolsonaro comes from this very state-centered dictatorship approach focused on the military. Yeah. But his politics and his campaign is focused a lot on economic liberalism and the minimum state. And free market. So, yes, and free market. So he plays this double-edged sword when, whenever he needs to answer something and he needs to sound liberal, he's going to send Paulo Guedes into it 
and whenever he needs to show the force of the state and centralize things, he's going to go himself as the head of the armed forces, not necessarily as president, but yeah. he rather call, call himself in some situations as the head of the armed forces. So you see, it's really puzzling because he has this thing of like a it's lot a of states, but no states as well. It's very useful for him in the sense of staying in power and appeasing at one point one person and the other. Literally, So yeah. when, the, as for instance, when oil prices increased a lot and people were complaining, especially the union of truckers, he said, no, 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 but the, what is happening in Petrobras is unacceptable. The company had, I don't know how many billion rise in benefits, something yeah. needs to be done. Yeah. He doesn't say like, I'm going to intervene in the company because it's not fully state-owned, etc. But he says, something needs to be done. People will be like, ah, he knows. But then he's like, yeah. you do see all these state companies losing money all the time, nobody works there, and Paolo Vieira complains about it, and so on and so forth. So it's very useful to play a bit of this, let's say, populist narrative at the end of the day. No, absolutely. To, to try absolutely. to solve Everyone. quickly one if thing. If you can play with everyone in the end, I mean, it's, exactly. that's, the, that's the basics yeah. with, uh, with popular narrative. I think it was said in the, in the UK, like, Boris Johnson was going to win the election because he could play socialist and he could play liberal, and that's why the yeah. leftists were never going to win the election. <laughs> <laughs> see, but this is also... Uh, because Paulo Guedes is not a developmentist. He's a, an 80s liberal yeah, economist. Yeah, yeah. He's doing everything Brazil did in the 80s mm-hmm. and failed. So we know that that's not a good economic, yeah. economic policy. The market, though, is relying on that because the international it's investors were very strong. Yeah, yeah. right. So and for, many, for them, that's right. good. But yeah. in terms of Brazilian economy, it's not going to go anywhere with an 80s policy. So mm-hmm. it's a bit of a, a risky business in how... You would be betting right. on Paulo Guedes because you know that the economy is going to be better for multinationals and for international investors. But that also derails the Brazilian internal economy, which means Brazil is not going to grow as much. Brazil is not going to be I must as say, easy though, to invest. I must say, the idea of the public spending cap, um, if the objective is to seek international investment, it is a good idea. Yes. Although I think the issue of Brazil is sometimes... Um, not much about the public expenditures that we can say there's always like examples of how they mm. misallocated money, how they, they pay this public servant a lot of money and they don't do anything, etc. But also the taxes and everything. Like yes. Brazil is a country, for instance, where dividends in stocks don't pay taxes. Yes. And when you can trade stocks up to 20,000 reais, which is around 5,000 euros, without paying taxes, right? Which in every other country in the world you could pay for them. So it's like we are overcharging sometimes with very taxes for here, taxes for there, you know, and everything, while other things are not taxed. And actually, this is a thing that feeds inequality. Like, Absolutely. The fact that you don't tax the dividends of stocks benefits the rich, mm-hmm. doesn't benefit the poor, benefit the rich that have a lot of stocks and everything and can live out of dividends. So mm-hmm. the question now, because Lula actually, as you said, he wanted like overcome this, like, okay, it's not necessarily a good point to just now completely go and spend as much as we want, but like maybe have an honest debate about the state of public right. finances, where do we source our money? Where do we get our taxes from? Who are we benefiting from this system and who we are not? We can try to compensate with a lot of public expenditure. Absolutely. But if you look at Brazil, we need to get also the income in this regard. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. The public expenditure in Brazil is diverse. And then you go and you put a cap on very core areas, such as health and education. Yeah. Right? It's uh, so what that turns out in Brazil, for instance, health is an example for many countries. And so like because it works very well. It really does. For a country that has the geography of Brazil. The way that Europe the, the European Union does well our um public health here 
it's very based in what happened in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Lula had to go and talk to Queen Elizabeth before they had their <laughs> NHS there. And it's openly based on yeah. SUS, right? Yeah. This, the NHS from Brazil is called SUS. And the fact that it can reach... Uh, we are getting very pro-Brazilian here, right? The fact <laughs> it can reach... As you put it before, like the capillarity of institutions in Brazil, yes. you can say there's always... They reach the remote place in the Amazon. It's ridiculous it's that a country right? like, that had the capacity for vaccinating the population that Brazil had in the past yeah. would have problems with COVID like we had. No, actually right? the vaccination campaign was, I mean, uh, the vaccinations campaign that happened in Brazil before the pandemic, COVID pandemic, were always an example. That's it. That the is. problem is when there was no political will for doing it and you put obstacles on it, of course it don't happen. And that's why we see all of the bad consequences. But otherwise Brazil had the means, let's say, or at least the, let's say the processes to implement and roll out a very good vaccine. Yes. Um, but okay, yeah, but, we're getting but, a little... But following, but following <laughs> a little bit like that, because that's, I mean, what you're saying is that Brazil, it's an economy that is strong, blah, 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 but we're talking about inequality then. And one of the biggest issues that Brazil has, it's inequality. Uh, inflation is not extremely high, but it is high mm -hmm. at this point. We have a history of high inflation. You have a history of high inflation. Therefore, right now, it's not excessively high. Yes. Uh, I think it's higher it's now. On, Twelve percent. I'm not too sure about about the. It should be around ten or twelve percent, but it's set to increase. Okay, but like mm, for me to to put in an, as, as an example, like it's the average of the EU right now. Oh, more or less, a little bit over the average more of the less, EU yeah. right now. Um, unemployment is uh, eight point seven percent. The official, mm -hmm. uh, more or less. Always this 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 stats you have to take them with uh, everywhere. Yeah, there's a lot. But it, the, the informal how, economy in Brazil is but, very big. But at the same yeah. time. Precisely because of the moment that, uh, precisely because of the moment now that the new government is going to enter, what we can expect is a rebound from uh, an economic rebound from from COVID. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So I have two questions in that sense, and one is: uh, Is that economic rebound expected to happen in Brazil? And uh, more because I would like to go. We would like to go a little bit more into the international arena. Is how can Brazil? use this international situation right now? How can the government of Lula use this international situation right now with the cap with the raw materials that Brazil has, with everything, with now the, the lacking of raw materials and problems with supply chain? How can Brazil engage with this international community to sell this pro to sell these products because during the time with Bolsonaro it was more or less isolated in many ways. But Lula yes, has <laughs> but Lula Lula was characterized for being Really open to basically everyone yes. entering bricks, uh, um, like uh, closer com closer relations with the other South American countries. Even uh, Joe Biden seems to be relatively closer to well, relatively no. But Brazil is a still a, is a very protectionist uh, countries in its economy. Like most of the big countries, like yeah. the G twenty, for example. Yeah, but, yeah, but, like, but right now, but right now, I mean, with the there's a lack of there's. There's literally there's is, not even a lack of raw resources. It's like there is a problem with the supply chain that you cannot even connect places. And like you have some places in China that should be yeah. exporting some some uh, metals, but they can't because I think the port is... Uh, the question closed. for the government is like, this wealth that might be generated, how well it will be redistributed in the country? And will it make a meaningful impact for the wider population on the other day? Yes, yes. If you have, let's say, raw materials, um, they benefit directly big well-established companies like Valley, you know, mm -hmm. which is one of the biggest mining companies in the world. But um, how much does it benefit the community? How much it benefits the rest of the population that relies on most of the times services, 
informal economy, etc., etc. So we might see an economic boom with Brazil benefiting from all this need for, let's say, raw materials, etc., etc. But um, I'm really worried about if it really will have a big impact on lifting people out of poverty, etc., without good public policies. Brazil, yeah, uh, Brazil. Alex, you've been so quiet. <laughs> I mean, what is your impression so far as like a more or less well, outside? All the questions I wrote down, you stole and asked <laughs> them for me. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think the main question I have now, because we're talking about like Brazil going forward in the future, but like, and I think when Lula won, everyone was like, oh, far right populism has been defeated in Brazil. Like, oh, how great. <laughs> But actually, like in the Congress, they gained seats. A lot of the governors have uh, gained seats, won seats. And so will Lula actually be able to do that much? And looking forward, like, is like that Bolsonaro, his ideas and his concepts, they're still very strong in the country. So like, was this really a big win? Were you a sniper in the army? Because that question is the question, right? Um, absolutely. That's the most important challenge that Lula has to face now. Two most important challenges. Um, we say that Bolsonaro is not Bolsonarism. It's just like Mussolini was not fascism, right? So Bolsonarism is still there, still a game. And Bolsonaro is not dead, right? He's still there, he's still playing his game. He has a family that was very involved with it. So no, right-wing populism is not dead in Brazil. And it's not going anywhere. It's actually quite strong. It's, uh, as you said, it's 49% of the votes that we got was following that. It doesn't mean that they're all um, far-right populism, but it's there. It's a strong player. We cannot diminish that. Um, on the other hand, Lula won. He won uh, in this environment of a more conservative Congress in a more conservative Senate as well. And he had to do uh, 10 different parties coalition to do so. So, yes, Lula is going to have to juggle power to make things happen in Brazil. Can he do it? Absolutely. If anyone can, it's that, that, that guy, right? Um, to what expense? Then that's the real issue. And remember, Lula is the guy that's known for the scandals of corruption exactly because he needed people to be on his boat. Um, on the other hand, a lot of this is kind of what's expected from a, a big economy operating overseas, there's a lot of sketchy things that happen, right? So you'd be expecting that, uh, for example, it's the case of Brazil in, in um, Angola, if I'm not mistaken, that the companies that would go do engineering processes in, in Angola, they were benefiting from a lot of sketchy benefits from the government. Uh, but that's also the CIA. That's also how the UK did most of his things. It's part of the geopolitical game. It's Clearly not ethical, but it's going to happen, yeah? So that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, we were talking in the beginning of this conversation how the Supreme Court in Brazil has been involved in politics a lot. And they've, they're being very criticized by it. And that's the basis of a lot of the requests for a coup in Brazil. This happens because if you have three powers and the legislative is very conservative and the executive is very conservative as well under Bolsonaro, then it's very easy for you to move forward with very conservative policies, then it's going to be the Supreme Court that's going to have to hold them back. So it, they become very active. So now when you have Lula in the executive as a very center-right coalition, and this is something that's very interesting too, because the parameters in what's right and what's left in Brazil have been shifted to the right. So you look at Lula and you say, he's a communist, he's a center-left guy, right? You look at... Uh, Gerald Walking, the vice president, and you, you tell me he's a center-right, 
for me, he's a very classic right winger. He's mm-hmm. São Paulo's right wing, right? Mm-hmm. He's been always. But now when you have Bolsonaro in the game, he's a center right is even a bit kind to him, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's a right wing. It's just that Bolsonaro is so far to the right. That being said, it's a very centered coalition that's in the executive now. Uh, what's going to happen with the Supreme Court there? It's going to be a very complex game to play. Um, so we're not, at least I'm not expecting Brazil to come out of the fourth year of Lula. Lula's already said that he's not going for re-election. We know that politi- politicians say that a lot and do that very Can he go? Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, what's the, is there a term limit for having success, uh, successive uh, You can elections? go for re-election once mm-hmm. and then you have to step down. But then when you go back, you can go for re-election once, mm-hmm. right? Ah, fun thing for the guys that are li- for the ones that are listening, the Bolsonaro has been the first president in the democracy of Brazil that hasn't got re- that didn't get re-elected. Yes, since uh, since the, uh, since after the we yeah, military yeah. Dictatorship. we say that this is an election of many firsts, right? It's the first time that a lot of things happen. But in a way, that's a kind of history, right? Like history is yeah. a f- succession of first times in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But to get back to your question, Alex. Um, so I'm not expecting Brazil to at the end of the fourth year of Lula's uh, mandate now that we're going to go back to what we were, you know, like the yes, Brazil as the this beacon of hope for South America. I don't think that's what we're looking at. I think Lula is going to have a lot of trouble trying to get things on track, which is going to be a very different experience from what we had when he took, when he took over right after Fernando Ricardozo aligned Brazilian economy in the 90s. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's a we are looking into a very different Lula than he was in the past. You're absolutely yeah. right. Okay, cool. And then how would you say that he aligns with the other like leftist governments in Latin America since we were talking about this? Like, I mean, are there similarities between them? Does he work well with them? You know, Lula works well with, with everyone. Okay. Everyone. <laughs> the trick is that there is this um, when you say left wing in Latin America, sorry, when you say left wing in Latin America, it's a historical um, image as well. There's an imaginary about that because a lot of our independences, they relied on this left wing pushing that. And then imperialism came right after the independences of Latin America. And then the left wing pushed out uh, uh, some of those regimes as well. Um, it's not the case in Brazil, but this really bonds the whole of Latin America in a way, uh, or at least South America. What Lula has always tried to do is that he's shifting the way that Brazil deals with international power from a north-south, as in Brazil being a very good friend of EU and the US and being kind of like the underdog and the powerful, he flips it around and he goes through a south-south cooperation. That's where you have BRICS coming from, which was an economic alliance, and then it became this kind of block kind of, you know, aiming to I mean, a I mean, political it's, it's getting strength. It's getting strength now, I mean, because BRICS also... Yeah, we don't know. I, with, with the whole Ukraine situation, I'm not so sure. Well, then, yeah, yeah, but like also you have uh, countries entering uh, BRICS now or applying to enter BRICS now. You have Argentina applying to enter BRICS. It's uh, not Algeria. something you apply for in a way because oh. it's not an organization, at point, right? <laughs> at which point Argentina can be still I mean, at what a point, major at global at which point player Argentina nowadays, can be... You know? 
well, that's a Sadly. that's another that's a conversation we'll yeah, have. Yeah, but at one point, South Africa, for instance, has an economic might and power. You know? Yeah, but for example, I mean, we have power sense, outages every sense, day in the country. In that sense, <laughs> yes, you have you have all those you have all those problems, but still, South Africa is the second largest economy of Africa, the largest in the south. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brazil is the largest. Don't worry, guys. Brazil America. has oil. We can sell. This is the joke. That's it. But this is the joke that is guiding Lula's foreign policy from day one on the first government that he took, which is let's do a South-South, let's do Mercosul, let's bring Mercosul to the standards of European Union. Mm. And if Brazil does it, it's very smart for Brazil because it sounds like, oh, we're so cool, we're so South-South, but it's very imperialistic from our side, right? Yeah. Brazil would go to Africa. The center. Yes, the center of, of South America. And then we have great bonds with Africa because of the tragic past that we have with the mm -hmm. people being enslaved and brought to Brazil and the diaspora and all of that. Uh, but that came to be that Brazil has a very good relationship with most uh, countries in Africa and that really gave, now and not anymore, uh, after the right wing took charge in Brazil, Brazil has been removed from it, China took over, so that's China's territory, quote unquote. Um, but that's Lula's game in the past, it's to go there and to do a South-South kind of game, which is why the US is never fully happy with what Lula is doing there. Um, and we can even see that there is a lot of um, hidden uh, under the table supports to resistance towards the left wing of Brazil. Of course, Bolsonaro was a bit too far, too extreme, just like Trump was. Um, it's not surprising that Biden would deal well with Lula in that sense, but much more as him trying to position himself as an alternative or as an opposer of Trump. And then now, because he opposes Trump, then he needs to oppose Bolsonaro, mm -hmm. right? Then really believing that the Brazilian economy goes better under Lula, because for Brazilians, it might, if he is lucky and skilled, uh, I, I would say it will, but I'm not that optimistic. Uh, but it's definitely not as good for the US, because that means we compete a lot, right? Same thing with Europe. And Europe, you know, European Union has kicked out Brazilian products with a lot of protectionist tricks, like, I don't know, health regulations and all of that. Uh, just to be clear, we need health regulations, all right? I'm not saying <laughs> yeah, we don't. Yeah. But there's ways you play this, right? There's yes, geopolitics. Yes, yes. We can't pretend it's not a game that you're playing for power. So this is what I expect from Lula. I expect this South-South alignment more and more. Um, will it? Will he be able to do it with the needs to appease the Faria Limers as... Uh, uh, Fed mentioned, which are which is the investors and and all of that in São Paulo. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I really think he will because that's what Lula does. On the other hand, it's easy to do it when the economy is going is going great. I yeah? think summarizing many things is like uh, Lula, like he's facing a lot of challenges now compared to when he got into power the last times. Yeah, it's clearly mm -hmm. not so, the same situation. And. Uh, we might have a lot of hope, or many might have a lot of hope, that he will try to push and do a lot of changes. But if we are a bit more pragmatical, I think it will be it will prove to be very challenging. You know, so yeah. Regarding particularly with uh, with South America, because uh, I mean there is a, in, with all the differences in every government that right now has been elected in Latin America, it is true that there is a shift. I mean, even Colombia has had for the first time a, a leftist government. Um, and there were certain there were certain uh, uh, organizations that were that were left there after the recent conservative wave in Latin America, like Alba, for example, was not that used that much, or like they created the Lima uh, Lima Agreement, which now doesn't exist because uh, it was a conservative force. Mm, do you foresee uh, Brazil pushing? You're calling you're talking about the South South, but do you see Brazil more of a 
of a global player rather than wanted to establish some stuff in Latin America and South America that would uh, encourage uh, internal growth or, or common policies? Or do you see Brazil more playing the opportunity in, international, good, in the international? Because I see, I, I mean, but if they I, want there's to something, whatever... There's something they, important, like also the local elites. Like mm-hmm. the reason, in my opinion, that we don't have more integration in Latin America, economically speaking, is because there are some local elites, industrial, for instance, that they benefit a lot from protectionism. Mm-hmm. Like Brazil has a, 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 a tax on every manufactured good that is over $50 mm-hmm. and the tax is 50%. So this microphone is actually 50% more expensive in Brazil. 50% but yeah. in, in, on imports or also in product? In local on products? imports. The okay. thing is, this benefits local industrial yes. elites. However, they have to still import some things and of course this increases the prices, so on and so forth. So who really benefits from that is that local elite. When you say like, actually, no, we've got to remove this tax. I'm going to in- integrate with our Argentinian brothers and the Argentinians have their own elites, which are even more entrenched, in my opinion, than in Brazil in some aspects. They don't want to cooperate. They don't want to establish. They don't want to push further. There are some things that they might agree. Hey, let's exchange grain. Let's do these things and that. But it's always a limit. And actually fighting this local, most of the times, in my opinion, also industrial elites, it is very hard. And without that, you cannot really push for economic integration in the region. Although I will see, like, for instance, more cooperation in um, politically in, in many instances, mm-hmm. like, or also in organized crime. The fact that like, yes, you can talk voice. with Colombia in a more or less uh, friendly way. And well, you can cooperate more in criminal issues, in other issues, also with Argentina, which was in fact, that was my master's thesis. I was talking about innovation in cyberspace and how that in how these innovations happen in police intelligence and how these innovations happen in organized crime as well mm. and how they match or they don't match each other, right? And it was very surprising for me to see that the type of cooperation for organized crime in Latin America or at least in South America, it's driven by Mercosul. And even if it's not Mercosul, the institution, it's those countries and then they add their buddies to the WhatsApp group as well, you know? Mm. Like, so it's really driven by this. Um, to go back to your question in the beginning, and I think it's going to talk a little bit about the challenges that you've mentioned too, uh, um, Alex, it's that I think, unfortunately, Brazil is going to try to play a more global game than regional. Unfortunately, because I think a regional would be the answer. Um, uh, Fede is absolutely right about how the elites are positioning themselves in this Mercosul game. Uh, I think we could have a, a, an only episode about Mercosul. Um, I have people to bring if you if you. No, 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 no. I really, I really, you know, I yeah. want to bring the I want to bring the the Iberian languages into this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Into this no, absolutely. Okay, next one is in Spanish and Portuguese. The geopolitical trickle in Spanish. Coming soon. No, but In any way, so. Yes, the elites are there, and you can see how the unlike European Union, the integration of borders happened much easier to migration in Mercosul mm. than it did to um, goods and economy. I could go to any of, of the Mercosul countries with my national ID, and it has official status of a document in any other country of Mercosul. Mm. Um, so it's basically an open border, right? Just like Schengen in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you can work, you can do uni there, you can do everything. You can just go there and live there. Um, on the other hand, 
it's not the same if you want to sell something there, right? That's mm-hmm. Federico saying. Yeah. So this is definitely a challenge. And then there's also internal Latin gossip that goes on, you know, Colombia and Venezuela and Uruguay. And mm-hmm. there's all that drama that goes there. If you like telenovelas, I really Mercosur is amazing. Yeah, I really suggest you go into, into yeah, Latin yeah. American history. Um, yes, 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 yes. But Brazil seems, I think Lula seems to be playing the global agenda more. Yeah. And this, for me, it has to do with what you mentioned, Alex, how this uh, huge challenges of this diverse game that Lula is going to have to play. Uh, he's already said uh, there's this thing that Brazil keeps saying that we want to be a part of the Security Council. That's yeah. absolutely a joke. Like, it's not, first of all, it's not going to change because the Security Council doesn't want to be changed. Mm-hmm. And they're the guys that are going to say if they're going to change or not. Um, then Lula goes and says, no, we need a new one altogether. Like, we need more African countries there. And then he goes and he does this very diverse discourse and all. Um, but you can see if he's pushing for that game in the Security Council, in the UN, and that sort of stuff, he's aiming globally. He's not, he hasn't mentioned Mercosur so far. Mm. He might have mentioned the president of Argentina, but not Argentina, our brothers, mm-hmm. hermanos. Like he hasn't yeah. touched that. I think there's more terrain to gain for Brazil in this regard. Like considering the position that he was very, very diminished by Bolsonaro administrations internationally, mm-hmm. the pushback can be bigger than in Mercosur or in, in regional integration, I would say. Mm-hmm. It would make it a, a bigger comeback, especially also for, for trade. I mean, Including also, for Mercosur, right? Yeah, including yeah, for Mercosur yeah. and everybody else. But like Brazil coming back to the international arena can, at one side, benefit the, the local leagues of Brazil, etc. And also like there's more terrain to gain. There's more to do than just trying to go again and compete regionally, in my opinion, right now, at this moment. Mm-hmm. Right. But when they come to this global arena, because right now, especially like the discourse in the West, is that there's the East versus West game being played, yeah. where it's the US and the EU on one side and Russia and China on the other. Where does Brazil oh. envision itself in there? Or is it like, we don't even care it, about it that, depends. we're like a third? I think it depends part. on the price of fertilizer. Our secret card that we always play, the yeah. way our, you know, our strategy book in terms of diplomacy, um, it goes like the president doesn't touch this topic. We have a very good diplomatic body. It's been there from colonial times and we're great at that. Um, so Itamarachi, which is his institute, uh, takes care of this and that's it. Um, and they're actually amazing. They're great diplomats. Uh, and then Lula comes in and says, you know what? I want to be international. I want to be a star. And then he does the, his game and he's actually very good at it. So there's uh, this thing to look at as well. Is Brazil going to do what Brazil's always done diplomatically, which is great, but it's not necessarily Lula? Or is it going to follow Lula in this uh, way that Lula envisions Brazil in the global market? However, um, the game that we usually played is of a pendular diplomacy. So not neutrality, but pendula. So it's what Fed is saying. It depends on the price of the fertilizers. It depends on the price of the of the iron. Brazil has so much iron. And then, what? You need... Nazis need iron. Okay, it's good money. And then, oh, the US needs iron. Oh, that's fine too. Keep in mind that when you have the focus instead of east and west to south-south, mm-hmm. it is easier to play this pendular game at the end of the Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Because yeah. like, no... We are more aligned and focused on the South and African countries, etc. But of course, we need to take care. But that, then we cannot expand. That. We cannot expand a really strong uh, Brazilian uh, position uh, in front, like towards anyone. Like we cannot expand that. We can only we can only expand 
abstentions, so to say. Like we cannot expand that black and white. We need to spend the gray in the absolutely in the international yeah. arena. And you see that even the concept of a third world country, and in my perspective, Brazil is one of the biggest examples of a third world country in many ways. Um, you have the first world, which is capitalism. Second world is communism. Third world is non-aligned. And second world goes off. We don't even talk about second world countries anymore. And then we kind of lose this meaning, right? But that's exactly what it is. It's countries that did not have direct support from each of the sides. So they kind of were left behind in this uh, game of having money to develop your own style of, of country. Mm. Um, it's not fully the history of Brazil because we did align with the US after all. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. got a lot from it including a military dictatorship and much more genocide. Yes, true. It's a wonderful condom. Right? (laughs) But to be fair, it's not to no benefit of of Brazil. Industrialization of Brazil happened with the support of the US and it changed all of the game. So um, that being said, Brazil and the US, we have uh, forbidden love. It happens (laughs) behind curtains, okay? But then uh, let's say that Lula is not the person that's more in love in that relationship and Bolsonaro clearly was he said I love you to Trump but let me tell the joke and say that on the other hand Obama shook Lula's hand and said that Lula was the most powerful man in the world so, so. the game is very different with each of them now is Lula playing his game or is Lula playing the Brazilian diplomacy classic game in it I don't know he's already talked to a polemic, he made a polemic statement saying that oh, you know what Zelensky's not all that bad and come on. All that good. He's not all that good. Like both of them are yeah, guilty true. for... Uh, both for of them are guilty. Yes. That's yes, yes, yes. Bo- it's one thing to say that they're not all bad or not all good. It's another thing to say that Zelensky's guilty, right? Yeah. Come yeah. on, mate. Don't, don't, I mean, don't go ahead. Well, yeah. that, is, that is like a pendular. <laughs> the best <laughs> example of pendular. <laughs> exactly, right? Like, yeah. oh, no, no, no. There's wrong things on both sides, which is exactly what we're doing inside of Brazil. But as you can see, this discourse, yeah. he will never use it, let's say, when talking about Angola. Oh, no, never. Like ever. talking about uh, South Africa, Argentina, any other country, you know. So the, yeah. the focus, the because also, what I think is also... In a pragmatic way, where can you have a bigger um, international impact that can benefit you really more? Like, it clearly is benefits you to go to, let's say, Angola and say, we are brothers, you know, same heritage from the Portuguese colonizers, we are fully support you, and then you do business, and that's okay, you know? There's way more influence that Brazil can have in these countries, and that's why they keep a very, no, this is absolutely how it should be, etc., etc. In the other sense, can Brazil re-influence the war in Ukraine? No. Can they benefit from Russian fertilizers? Yes. Can they benefit from exporting meat to Europe? Yes. That's it. <laughs> Let's try to play again. Oh, it's not so clear, right? If I'm not in a dominant position in this regard, well, maybe it's not so clear. So, If anyone can do it, that's He's this light. Sadly, Bolsonaro, the problem he had, in my opinion, he was way too ideologized in his foreign, uh, in his foreign politics, in, in diplomacy. The example with China not getting the vaccines because they are oh, Chinese man. made, etc. Like it ruined he, the reputation of Brazil internationally just because he applied a lot of ideological concepts. And he's sadly, he's for, his foreign minister as well. Yes. Uh, even though he came from the but diplomatic. See, that's not the, the foreign minister is a symptom of what happened there. No, no, right? totally. Yeah. Because we had uh, to support the way that Bolsonaro came to power, the radicalization that happened. It comes with the basis of conspiracy theories. They're all imported from the US as well, uh, but from the 60s, right? And then this guy just comes and uh, 
paints it with a different shade and sells it to Brazilians with the same names, with the same structures. And then when Brazilians look at it, there's a lot that's been said about it already, the globalists and all. And yeah. this is a tool that Bolsonaro uses and the far right um, populism. Yeah. Right. So this is why I don't think Bolsonaro is worried about international, no, no. the international agenda. He, he clearly believes when he says that the World Health Organization created the virus something. Let's no, but say, that's what uh, I mean. He, he, he might believe it individually, but yeah. I don't think it's part of his policy that he wants to do this or do that or position himself like, you know, right wing. I think he's just playing the national game of being a right wing populist. Yeah. And what do you need internationally? So you're the guy that's in, on my side and you understand about international stuff and you're the minister now. So I, I feel yeah. he's always playing it like this. But this is a feeling, right? It's not an analysis. It's based on how I see my uncles and aunties. Lei, and, well, yeah. uh, in future perspective now, let's see how, how Lula goes. I think the okay. pendulum is a very good explanation. That, uh, mm-hmm. Historically, it's what we do, right? Yeah. So let's see. Let's see. I'm really excited to see what's going to come from it too. Okay. So I think with this we can finish for today. We've been talking a lot. Thank yeah. you very much. Uh, I I personally learned a, a lot from from hearing you. I don't know, Alex, you? Yes. No. This was great. This was like a crash course in Brazilian <laughs> politics. It was, was uh, Felipe's masterclass. I, <laughs> I think that's how we're going. I think that's how we're going to call it. Actually, yeah. <laughs> oh, but the Amazon is in Brazil. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. No, I think, uh, and we started with saying, we just started saying that there's like around 300 uh, uh, different peoples in Brazil, whatever. I think we went from like the smaller part there to like the bigger part. And I think it's really, yeah, really, really interesting. And for that, I want to thank you for being today in the Geopolitical Pico. Again, uh, if you got until this part of the podcast, uh, Felipe has, the, has his own podcast, which is called Espetinho Internacional. If you want to learn Portuguese, it's a good idea. If you want to learn about uh, Brazilian politics, it's a great idea. Uh, we'll leave the, the links in the description and everything. And I want to thank you, Fede, for being here today again. Thank, thank you, you Papa. And Alex, I want to thank you, obviously, for being here, even though <laughs> this is also your program. And um, to you that you're listening, thank you very much for listening. And we'll come the next week with more The Geopolitical Pico. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to your political pico. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to seeing you next time. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for more behind the scenes content. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you and see you next week. 